Ahoy, hello, welcome along. You've managed to find the smartest show in the universe. This is the Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name is Dan. Thank you for finding us, for listening and for following and streaming. This show has more secrets you will ever find lurking around the solar system. We take all the greatest things from the galaxy and we squeeze them together so you can find out everything in about half an hour. Now, did you see the incredible pictures that the James Webb Space Telescope sent back the other week? We spoke about them on the show. They're the oldest stars in the universe. And today, we'll chat to a space expert about what you can actually see in them. These are just the first images from Webb, and yet they show us already so much more detail and have allowed us to see things which we have never seen before. Also, Techno Mum is back this week looking at the gadgets involved in some of your favourite sports. That was a close finish. How do they tell who's won? More technology, of course. Cameras, monitors and even lasers are used to capture the athlete's times. And I've got your questions to answer. As always, uh, this time out, they are on wheezing and water. It's all on the way in a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Let's get started with your science in the news. A fossil that's recently been found turns out to be the earliest known animal predator. It's a 560 million year old creature that was found in a forest in Leicester in the UK. It's an early ancestor of a creature called the Nidaria, which today those animals include the jellyfish. Now, this early animal predator has been named Aurora Lumina Attenborai in honour of one of the most famous animal experts ever, Sir David Attenborough. Also, the football club Reading have released a new home shirt to raise awareness of climate change. It's been designed by Professor Ed Hawkins, a scientist, and the, the, the sides of the shirt, the, the sleeves, are multicoloured stripes, which show the year's average temperature over the last 150 years. It gets hotter and redditer towards the arm as we get more recent. And finally, a squirrel has broken the law to get himself some food. It broke into a hardware shop, B&Q, uh, and helped itself to lots of nuts. Now, squirrels are known for nicking bird food, and this time it broke into a DIY shop, taking the phrase do-it-yourself to a whole new level. Let's check in with Professor Hallux now. Here's one of our favourite geniuses on the show. He knows everything about what's going on inside your body. What's going on with your muscles, with your lungs, with your heart, with your ears, why you feel sick, why you get better. And this series is all about your mouth. You see, it's Professor Halleck's Uncle Halitosis, his 100th birthday. To celebrate, he has set up a digital dental depository. Professor Halleck's Digital Dental Depository. With support from Philip Sonicare. <laughs> to honour great Uncle Halitosis, dentist extraordinaire, on the occasion of his 100th birthday, Professor Halleck is creating a pop-up digital dental depository, an oral health help desk. He's going to see how many questions all about teeth he can answer against the clock. I think the turbine's nearly up to speed. Ready, Nanobot? It looks like it's loading some devilishly difficult dental doozies. 
I'm ready. Here we go. First question. What is a dentist? Dentists are specially trained medical specialists. They know all about teeth and mouths, how to keep them healthy, and how to mend and treat problems that might arise. Next question. Why are dentists important? Well, that's easy enough. It's because teeth are important. If you haven't got teeth, two things start to get difficult. First of all, eating. You'd have nothing to bite and chew your food and would only be able to eat soup. And then secondly, there's talking. Teeth help us to form different letter sounds. Without them, youth talk a bit like this. Strong start as always, Professor. What happens when you visit a dentist? So here's how it works when you go for a checkup. You sit in a lovely big squishy chair, which is adjustable, so it might go up and down a bit. The dentist will then have a look in your mouth and count your teeth. If you've got more than 50, then you may be a crocodile and have to be sent to the zoo. <laughs> Only joking. The dentist may start by checking to see how many baby teeth you may still have and if your adult teeth have started to appear. They'll check to see that your teeth meet properly when you bite and look at your gums to see if they're nice and pink. They may use a probe to examine your teeth and gums. That's basically a stick with a pokey bit on the end. Sometimes they might also take an x-ray to look under the surface too. X-rays sound very whizzy and action-packed, but to be honest, they're nowhere near as exciting as that. It's more like having a photo taken inside your mouth. Sounds exciting to me. Next up. What happens if the dentist spots tooth decay? That's damage to your teeth from eating sugary food and not brushing enough. Well, if you have tooth decay, you might need a filling. The dentist scrapes or drills out the rotten part of the tooth and then fills the hole with a special filler that sets as hard as the enamel on your teeth. Dentists are very kind people and make sure having a filling doesn't hurt. They'll probably give you some special medicine and an injection to numb any pain. And when your tooth is filled, you get a big round of applause for being brave. Of course, there's a really easy-peasy way to avoid tooth decay and cavities and fillings and all that. And it's something you should be doing twice a day for at least two minutes. Brushing your teeth. That'll keep you smiling and make sure every trip to the dentist is a breeze. That's correct. And time's up. Brilliant, Professor. Very respectable score there. And lots of data for our digital dental depository. Time to answer some of your questions on this show. We do this every week and I love it. I love doing the digging, looking around in books and online, doing research to answer some of the science problems that you send to me as a review on Apple Podcasts. First one this week is from Elle, who wants to know, why do we wheeze? Now, you might have heard this sound when you've got a bit of a sore throat, when you've got a frog in your throat, you might wheeze. <gasps> well, if you have asthma or an allergy, or maybe you've just got a cold, the airways in your throat, which move air from your mouth to your lungs and all around there, they get inflamed. Now, they do this on purpose. They get inflamed to protect you from viruses. They make mucus, which tries to, to attract. It tries to get all the germs to stick to it. But it, that mucus is a slime that blocks the airways. And the sound that the air makes, trying to move through that blockage, 
is a wheeze. So that is why you wheeze and it can be a bit squeaky, L. Next up this week, it's from Lucy, who's in Scotland, who wants to know what the world would be like if all the oceans did not exist. Uh, well, very simply, Lucy, it wouldn't be good. Wouldn't be a very fun place to live. You see, without the oceans, the world loses almost all of the water, 97% of it. And that means there would be no rain. Have you learned about the water cycle at school? How water moves from the oceans up to the clouds, how it rains back down to the oceans. It's this big cycle. Now, without any oceans, you don't really get any rain. That means plants can't grow. It means animals can't eat. It means we'd have nothing to drink. So very quickly, if there were no oceans, kind of terrifyingly, all life on Earth would die off very quickly. Terrifying, right, Lucy? Thank you for the question. If there is something you would like answered on this show next week, you need to find the Fun Kids Science Weekly on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. Give us five stars so I can see it. Leave your name so I can say hello. You drop your question in the box at the bottom, and then I'll say hello. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Now, huge news. Something we've been speaking about for um, what feels like years now. The James Webb Space Telescope has sent back some of its first image of the oldest stars in the universe. We'll find out more right now with Dara Patel, who is a space expert at the National Space Centre. Dara, thank you for being there. Thank you for having me. So on the show, we've kind of covered what the James Webb Telescope is a little bit. We've followed it's being built, it being put in the sky. Uh, just tell us a bit more about what it actually is, what it's made of and wh- why it's up there. Absolutely. So If anyone has ever been perhaps to a museum or looked in books and you've seen these incredible pictures of space, they've probably come from the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, This is a telescope that has been placed in space and mostly looks at visible light, the light that we can see with our eyes. Now, the James Webb Space Telescope is like the next generation. So this is the next telescope after Hubble. It's over twice as large. So Hubble's mirror, I believe, was about two and a half meters wide. The James Webb Space Telescope's mirror is about six and a half meters wide. So it collects so much more light. And the difference is it is not collecting visible light, the light that we see with our eyes. It actually has four instruments on board and they detect infrared light. So this light is invisible to our eyes, but it allows us to see further or I guess deeper into the universe. And it's really far away, isn't it? Is, is it keep? Is it going to keep on travelling or is it kind of locked in place now? So it's reached its home, its destination, where it will continue orbiting. And it's about one and a half million kilometres from the Earth. Um, so it's pretty distant, but that's important because I mentioned that it collects infrared light. And what we need to do is keep that telescope cool uh, so that it's not detecting its own heat or its own infrared light. So it's got to be kept cool. So it has to be away from the sun and away from the earth that might actually heat it up. And we've had some big developments in the last few weeks. It sent back pictures. How big a deal is this for you? So I think if you talk to any scientist or astronomer, they will be you know, laughing with ecstasy. They will be so astonished by what we've had back. And part of that is because 
These are just the first images from Webb, and yet they show us already so much more detail and have allowed us to see things which we have never seen before. I've spotted the pictures myself, and the magnification is fantastic. There are all these bright lights. How far back are we looking in that picture, Dara? So I think the image that you're talking about is the image where there's this bright glow at the centre, which is a galaxy cluster. And then there are all these other dots of light around it. And each of those is a distant galaxy. And by looking in the infrared, the Webb telescope is actually able to see even further, even more distant galaxies than the Hubble did. So we're looking at the first sorts of galaxies that were forming, maybe just a few hundred million years after the Big Bang. So we're talking about galaxies over 13 billion years old. And how much is this likely to change what we know about the universe? Like, it's all well and good having a look at these old galaxies. Are we just doing it to have a nice picture or are we trying to learn something? Well, having a nice picture, I guess, is a perk, but actually we can learn so much from these images. One of the biggest things that we are trying to learn about is galaxy evolution. And we don't quite know how the first galaxies formed, how they've evolved, why we've got the different shapes of galaxies and the different sizes. And so if we can look back with the Webb telescope to some of these very early galaxies, we can start probing and learning about how these galaxies formed and then how they evolved. And perhaps that will help us understand what we might see in the future. Now, if you, I'm looking at the picture right now and there are loads and loads and loads of galaxies in there, but they, they look so small. Like how far away are they from the Webb telescope do we know? And also... How far away from the other galaxies is each one? Like, are we talking millions and millions of miles, even though on the picture it looks like millimetres? So to give you an idea, what we're talking on astronomical scales, we use a unit called a light year. Now, light travels at 300,000 kilometres a second. So imagine how far light can travel in an entire year. That's what one light year is. Now, the Milky Way's closest galaxy is two and a half million light years away. That means it took light two and a half million years to get to us. And that's our closest galaxy. So if we imagine, you know, galaxies are dotted all around the universe. Some of them are as close as two and a half million light years, which is still pretty far, and others will be even further away. So these galaxies look very small in that picture because we are, we're looking at incredibly distant galaxies, but there's so many of them because we're looking uh, at a part of the sky. And you know what's fascinating is there's so many galaxies in this picture but the part of the sky that we're looking at is literally the size of a sand of grain held out at arm's length. So it's a tiny patch of the sky, but yet there are so many galaxies within it. Wow. Uh, so it's taken the picture. It's gone up there. What, what's it doing now? Is, is it done its job? Or, or, all those oh, millions no. of pounds spent? Is it going to come back to Earth? So it's not going to come back to the Earth. It will stay where it is. And scientists predict that it's got about a 20-year life. And that's because its launch and all the procedures went incredibly well, that it was able to conserve some fuel. 
And even after giving us those images, Web has been working away. And every week, every few weeks, we'll see new data, new images continue to be released. So this is only the beginning. Last question. Are there any scientists, perhaps in NASA, that are getting almost a live feed from web. So we're seeing the pictures that are released, but are they getting almost like a webcam, constant pictures going over and over and over again? Or is it is the telescope set to take pictures every few weeks? So the telescope actually collects data and that data needs to be interpreted to create images. Like I mentioned, infrared light, we cannot see with our eyes. And so we have to take this data and assign it colors that we can see. So it's kind of like doing a color by number. Now the web telescope is continuously taking data, but that data is downloaded maybe a couple of times a day. Um, So the scientists are getting the data frequently enough, but it actually takes a bit of time to process what we're seeing to actually turn it into meaningful images or graphs or spectra that we can actually interpret. Wow, that's amazing. Well, listen, Dara Patel, space expert, if you are ever around the Midlands, go out of your way to go to the National Space Centre. It's in Leicester. It is phenomenal. Dara, thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Thanks. It's time for this week's Dangerous Dan, where we look at the most mean, wicked, amazing and brutal things in the universe. Uh, This time, our animal has got a brilliant way of defending itself. You'll find the Atolla jellyfish all around the world. It's in oceans. It looks a deep red colour. It's got a bulbous rounded top with the red strands that hang down from it. Now, it's got bioluminescence, which means it can glow. It can glow in the dark. Now, here's what's interesting. Most jellyfish use bioluminescence to attract prey. But the Atolla jellyfish uses it to warn off predators. And the way it does it is mind-blowing. Now, when the Atolla jellyfish is attacked, it will flash over and over again. Now, it does this to attract even more predators, even more beasts that might want to eat it. But what it's doing, it's hoping that these other creatures become more attracted to the first predator that's trying to eat it. It's using this alarm to try and get other creatures to deal with the one that's bullying it, that they'll swim over and think, hang on, this beast looks very, very uh, tasty. I want to eat it, and I don't fancy this jellyfish anymore. Uh, It's brilliant the way it does this. It gives it its common name, the alarm jellyfish, and that makes the alarm a taller jellyfish go straight onto our dangerous Dan list. It's time to get into a brand new series of Techno Mum right now. For the last few weeks, we've been listening to her game show where she's trying to win big by answering loads of tech questions. This time out, it's all about sports technology because we're getting into a big summer of sport gadgets, tech, is now so important with all of the games that we play. But how useful is it? Techno Mum is here to tell us more. Techno Mum's sport technology. Sam and his mum are excited about a summer full of sport. She's an engineer and Sam's surprised to find out how much engineering and technology have to do with sport. But surely sport's like the opposite of science or engineering. It's running races or jumping or swimming, playing ball games or lifting weights. 
It's not doing science or sums or drawing big diagrams. There's a lot more to engineering than that, Sam. Engineering is all about solving problems, making things work better, inventing and developing new technology. And think about how much technology there is in sport. Look at that stadium on telly. What tech can you see? Well, I guess there's the scoreboards and the cameras. And then look at the athletes. What are they wearing? Trainers, singlets, shorts. I don't get it. They aren't any old pair of plimsolls, though. Think how different they would look to the thin canvas running shoes of the last century. I suppose things have come on a bit. And imagine how hard they've trained to get here, using fitness machines, wearables like your fitness tracker, computers to monitor their progress, and equipment or clothing that can take readings. Technology helps athletes perform better than ever and train more safely. So it's not just smartwatches? Smart suits, smart glasses, helmets, golf clubs, almost anything. They're already a part of essential gear kits of professional athletes. That was a close finish. How do they tell who's won? More technology, of course. Cameras, monitors and even lasers are used to capture the athletes' times and establish who's taken the gold. In, say, football, you can get sensors on pitches to check exactly where the ball lands. And that's going to help referees and officials make more accurate decisions and lead to a fairer match. I bet footballers still complain about the result. It's a bit harder to complain to a computer. Come on, I'm going to the shopping centre. Give us a hand. Everything around us changes. Did you know this shopping centre we're in used to be a sporting venue? What? Inside the mall? The mall wasn't here then. It was a venue called Haringey Arena, and it hosted an incredible amount of events before it shut in 1958. It was home to five world title boxing matches, which is more than anywhere else in Britain, as well as hosting events for the 1948 Olympic Games. They even hosted the Horse of the Year show for years. The only race in ours to the till. <laughs> but venues are very much part of the experience of sport. They have to work for the competitors and the spectators. After all, no one wants to be stuck behind a post. You need a good view. Engineers are working with amazing new materials and processes to come up with really smart and sustainable new buildings. Yeah. Some of them look really space-age. Like the Allianz Arena in Germany. The whole outside lights up with multicolored LEDs. Or the bird's nest in China. It looks, well, just like a big steel bird's nest. Cool, right? And so you can see, although people will always play and watch sports for the love of it, and won't care about high-tech trainers or posh venues, technology can make things much more exciting. Faster races, closer finishes, and better experience for competitors and supporters alike. Are we anywhere near finished with this shopping? As an experience goes, it's not much fun. Cheeky. Just be glad I'm not making you take part in the Laundry Olympics later. Techno Mum's Sport Technology is created with support from the Institution of Engineering and Technology. Find out more at funkidslive.com slash technomum. And that is it for this week's episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Thank you so much for listening. If there is a science question that you would like answered on this show, you need to leave it as a review on Apple Podcasts. While you're there, you can hear loads of brilliant science podcasts that we do. They're also on Google, on Spotify, and on the free Fun Kids app. And Fun Kids, we are a children's radio station from the UK. Listen all over the country on your DAB digital radio and at funkidslive.com.